We have a story of kind of a strange crowd, uh, a continuation of last week's gospel reading, when Jesus stands up in the synagogue of his hometown, hometown of Nazareth and reads from the prophet Isaiah um, that the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, he has anointed me to bring glad tidings to the poor, liberty to captive, etc., this uh, messianic prophecy of, of Isaiah, and then sits down and says, today this prophecy is fulfilled in your hearing, meaning that he's claiming, I'm the Messiah. I'm the one Israel has been waiting for to save it, to redeem it. And then in the same breath, as people are saying, wow, this is great. Our hometown guy is the Messiah. Um, not only are we part of the chosen people, but we're part of his of his town. We know who. We've known him since he was a little kid. We know his parents, Mary and Joseph. And then by the end of his homily, they're all about to throw him off of a cliff and kill him. Why? In a way, this, this crowd in Nazareth represents the whole crowd that rejected Jesus, well, warmly welcomed him into Jer- Jerusalem on Palm Sunday and then on Good Friday, begged Pontius Pilate to kill him, the same people. But all of us, all of humanity who has warmly received God and his love and his good news at one moment, but at just another moment we want to kill him, assassinate him, get rid of him. This sort of split personality of all human beings in the fallen state of sin is all in microcosm there in Nazareth. But what is it that triggers the crowd to go from good to bad, to go from loving acceptance to hateful rejection? It's two stories that he references from the books of Kings. The first story is of the prophet Elijah, who uh, prophesied to the king Ahab, one of the worst kings of Israel, um, that the the heavens would be shut up, that there would be no rain for years. And this caused, of course, a famine. And Ahab and his wife Jezebel um, hated Elijah because he was the prophet of the true God, and Ahab and, and Jezebel were fond of all the other gods, especially the Baals, the, the gods of rain specifically. So this punishment of God was, was right to the point of, of their idolatry and of their sin, that the rains just wouldn't come. So Elijah had to run from the king and his wife, and God sent him to this widow in Zarephath in a town of Sidon, that is to say not a Jewish person, not an Israelite, not one of the chosen people, to take care of Elijah. And she, just like all of the widows in Israel at that time or in, the, in that area of the world, uh, was starving to death. And she had a child. She was a widow, so had no husband. And she was gathering sticks when he showed up. And Elijah says, I need you to make me uh, some bread, please. I'm hungry. And some water, please. And she, says, she explains to him, Sir, there's a drought and a famine. I have basically nothing. I was just going to... Uh, bundle up a few sticks, make a fire, and cook the little bit of flour and oil that I had left so that me and my son could have a last meal, and then we're just going to die. And he says, "Um, that's fine, keep doing that, but make me a cake first. And it's kind of this little joke in in the book of Kings that Elijah knows, of course, uh, and later tells her that God will take care of you if you take care of me. If you step out in faith and do this thing, this act of generosity, God will not let the flour or the oil run dry. And for a year, Elijah stays with her, and that same jar of flour and oil don't run dry. It's this act of faith, and and she is taken care of because she believes in the God of Elijah, the God of Jacob and Abraham, Yahweh, even though she's not Jewish. The second story that he references is about Naaman the Syrian. 
So Elisha, Elijah's uh, successor, Elijah anoints Elisha before going off into heaven. The book of Kings, by the way, read it. It's very, a lot of the great Bible stories are in Samuel and Kings, uh, four books of the Old Testament. So Elisha uh, is the prophet in Israel after Elijah goes to heaven. And uh, Naaman of Syria is like a commander of armies under the king of Syria. So also not a Jew, also not from Israel, but he has leprosy. He's a great commander, and the the king of Syria is very fond of him, but he's got leprosy and uh, is therefore sick and can't do his job. So um, it just so happens that one of the slave girls that they've captured in their fights with Israel is from Israel, believes in Yahweh, and says, there's a great prophet actually in my hometown that might be able to help you. His name's Elisha. And so not having any other options, the king sends Naaman, his best commander, to Israel, to the king, to ask that the prophet cure him of his leprosy. And the king says, this is some kind of joke. What do you think, I'm a a doctor or like some kind of miracle worker? I can't cure your leprosy. You're just looking for a fight. Elisha hears about this, Syrian coming from the east, and says, send him to me. So the king sends him Naaman, the leper. And Elisha tells him, okay, um, just go down into the river Jordan and wash seven times and you'll be cleansed. And Naaman's like, are you serious? There's way better rivers in Syria. Uh, I'm not, I don't need to just wash in your dirty Jordan River. And, and his servant, and he walks away and he's like, this was pointless. What, what was the point of this trip? And his servants say, hey, if he'd asked you to do something really hard, you probably would have done it because you, you, know, you came all this way. If he had told you to like, they don't say this, but hop around a, a tree stump, you know, 10 times and cut a chicken's head off and do all sorts of magic tricks. You probably would have done it if you thought that it would cure you of your leprosy. How much more should you do this easy thing that he tells you to do? Just go wash in the river. So he's like, all right, fine. He does it and he's cleansed. Again, he takes this step out in faith and trusts in the God of Yahweh and the simple ask that he makes, just trust me, wash and you'll be clean. And he receives the gift of God. So Jesus references these two stories, which the people in Nazareth would know very well, just to bring up the widow of Zarephath or Naaman the Syrian. They know exactly who he's talking about. Two non-Jews who received the gift of God because they put their faith in him. And immediately, they want to throw him off a cliff. Why? Because what Jesus is saying is that I am the Messiah. The words that I've just read from the prophet Isaiah have been fulfilled in your hearing because I've read them. I'm the anointed one, the Messiah, come to save Israel. But not just Israel, but the whole world. And the way that they will be saved is to have faith in me, to trust in me, just as this widow, just as this Syrian did. You don't have to be Jewish to be saved, is what he's saying. That I don't only belong to you, to you Jews and to you Nazareans. I belong to the world. I've come to save everyone. And this makes them very jealous and angry. Because why? It goes back to Cain and Abel. You know the story of Cain and Abel? The two sons of Adam and Eve. Abel put his sacrifice up to God and God was pleased with it. Cain did his and God was not so pleased. And Cain was jealous. And he kills his brother Abel out of jealousy. There is in our heart after the fall, some suspicion that there's not enough of God's love to go around. And if you're getting some of God's blessing, then I must be lacking some blessing that I should be receiving. And this jealousy, this attitude that God's love is somehow limited or God's power is somehow limited and I need, in order 
for me to be special, you need to not be special, is deeply in us that needs to be cured. Why is Jesus so fixated on faith? Why is he always telling the blind people who are cured or the paralytics who are cured, it's your faith that has saved you? Well, because we need to put our faith in Jesus in order to let him save us. Like, we're, we're, we're all paralyzed. We're all blind and deaf. We're all the one sitting by the pool that can't put ourselves into the healing waters. Someone more powerful than us must do it for us, and therefore we need to put ourselves in his hands. In order for me to be healed, I have to tell the doctor what's wrong. I have to trust in Jesus to be saved by him. But also, have you ever noticed that your faith, how you believe, what you think is out there, you often see? Like, for example, if you're one of these people, glass half empty, that the world's pretty much out to get me, that um, everything around me, things just tend to go wrong, then you notice all the things that go wrong. You notice all the red lights you hit. You notice all the people who cut you off in traffic who surely did that on purpose to make me mad. Right? That's just driving. I drive a lot. (laughs) There's a lot of things in life that if you have a negative outlook, you tend to see negative things. And the same is true of the reverse, that if you are a positive person, that if you you believe that the world is uh, is more or less a friendly place, that people are to be trusted, and on rare occasions are not trustworthy, then you will look out at a world that you see as good, as full of blessing. The same is true of God. If you look at God as a miser, as someone who's petty and shallow, who's judgmental, who's always looking for an excuse to condemn you, then that's what you'll see. When you go to pray, that's the God who will address you because that's how you look at him. But if you come with an attitude of faith in a God who loves you unconditionally, who is infinitely abundant in his blessings and wants to pour them on not just a select few but all of us, then you will see that it's not true That in order for me to be special, you need to not be special. In order for God to pay attention to me, he has to ignore you. There's enough of God's blessing to go around. And so, what do we do if we have trouble sometimes believing that God loves me? Or if we look at him and we say, well, yeah, that's true, but that's kind of like saying my mom loves me. She has to, right? But sometimes it feels like I want to be special. And I don't feel that way. I feel like... I'm more or less a burden. I'm not that valuable. I'm not that worthy of love. I don't deserve God's attention. How do I change that attitude so that I can receive the blessing he wants to give me? Your faith will save you. And in order to have faith, you have to step out and do something risky, trusting in God, like Naaman the Syrian. Naaman the Syrian thought he had to do something complicated, but it was actually very simple. What if it's just to make a resolution to pray every day for 10 minutes or to finally go to confession after you've been putting it off for so long? It's something right in front of your face that you just know you should be doing or something you should stop doing, some addiction or attachment you need to give up, some resolution, or to open up to a friend to say, hey, I struggle with this. Can you help me? Hold me accountable. Some act of faith, something that's not actually that difficult, but for some reason you have trouble doing, that you're bound up enslaved and in bondage of, just to let it go, to trust in God, like Naaman the Syrian, like the widow of Zarephath, to do something kind of crazy, kind of risky, and to find that God actually has enough grace, has enough love to care for you.